getting right going. Uh, you may have heard the term before, I'm sure you have, beating a dead horse. That is a term that um, has been around since 1859, was the first recording of when that word was used. It was used back in, in London, and it was a, a parliament member that was trying to push through some legislation, and it wasn't going so well, so the London Observer wrote this. It said, Mr. Bright was dissatisfied with his winter reform campaign, and rumors said that he had given up his effort with the exclamation exclamation that it was like flogging a dead horse. That's where we get that term, flogging a dead horse. Probably meant a little bit more back in that culture in 1860 than it does today. But the warning here as we as we wade into this, this section of Romans is um, to not check out because you think it feels like it's beating a dead horse. Um, because that's kind of what some would say Paul is doing as he as he starts into Romans chapter 2. Now, we were in Romans chapter 1 a few weeks ago, and um, as we know, he started off basically by saying that all of humankind is plagued with the same sickness, and that sickness is sin, and there's only one remedy for that sickness. There's no other way to, to remedy that sickness outside of the finished work of Christ through the gospel. And, and so he says in verse 16 of chapter 1, he says what? He says that the gospel, it is, it is something not to be ashamed of because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. To the Jews as well as to the Greeks, to the Gentiles. For everyone is what he is saying here. And then he goes into in verse 18 and gives 14 verses, very long verses, um, what seems like on the wrath of God that's being poured out upon a unrighteous culture that suppresses the beauty and the truth of God that has been implanted in their hearts through the image of God as they were created. This is suppressed, and so Paul gives um, this very descriptive 14 verses of how the wrath of God and why the wrath of God is being poured out on sinful culture out there. And then when we flip the page to chapter 2, you kind of can see in the minds of the religious Jews, they're saying, that's right, Paul. You go get that big bad world out there, those Gentile people, those sinners. Let them know. Let them have it. And what does Paul do? Paul says, hey, um, you think you're better than them? You think that maybe just because the veneer of your religion is, is cloaked over you that you don't but you don't have the very same heart sickness that they do. You might cover it up a little bit better. So who are you to judge these people? Because the very things that you're judging them for and the things that you see externally, you've got that going on internally. And so, so Paul then starts chapter 2 and spends chapter 2 and chapter 3 and chapter 4 basically saying the same thing in a lot of different angles. And so, yes... It is like beating a dead horse. It can seem like that. But Peter was not around in Paul's day. So one, it's okay that, that he does that. But the, the more important thing that we need to take note of is this. Um, it's a, it's a, called a, a hermeneutical method or principle. That means um, hermeneutics means the study of your Bible. So one of the great Bible study um, principles, if something is repeated, it is important. And Paul more than repeats the same theme as we go through the next verses that we're going to talk about today, as well as over the, over the next few chapters. And so don't check out, even though it might feel like we're beating a dead horse. 
Um, we're going to be in chapter 2, specifically 17 through verse 29. And um, let's pray and we'll, we'll just jump right in. Father, we um, come today recognizing that um, we have a little bit of that same DNA in us to, to look to others and blame others and not see within our own hearts and in our own lives. And so, Lord, we just pray that you would open um, the blindness of, of our hearts to our own, um, maybe our own false sense of security that can come from religious trappings. And Lord, also just remind us as we go on today, just remind us of the glory of the gospel of Christ that we can only find security in you because of the finished work of him on the cross. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. So the title of the sermon is The Dark Side of Religion. The Dark Side of Religion. Um, in our growth groups last week, and we, we have questions. Normally there's a kind of an opening question or an icebreaker question. And if you're not in a growth group, that's, that's okay. We'll, we always challenge that because this is not a, a one-time-a-week kind of thing. Is, is not really the way God designed us. We kind of, the, the, the cliche is we're in rows on Sunday, but in circles the rest of the week as we interact with people. So if you're not in a growth group, at least, um, at least make sure you have someone in your life that is um, challenging you, encouraging you in your faith and your walk with Christ. And you can use these questions just like the growth groups do. But one of the questions that we had here was, um, in the opening question, it was kind of a trick me question is being religious um, or is religion itself good or bad that was kind of the opening icebreaker question and and our group had a, a fun conversation about this and and really it's kind of hard to answer that question without some some pretty clear definition of what religion is what what does it mean to be religious what is religion now here's the problem with this with religion um, there is not one universal definition for religion and so believe me I've tried to find it. So what do you do? You look to scripture. What is, how does scripture define religion? And even what's funny is scripture itself doesn't clearly define this is what religion is. Five times in our New Testaments, we have the word religion that comes up. And that word in itself is a neutral word. Um, basically, it's not speaking about just one religion. It's not just speaking about the Jewish Christians. It's not just speaking about the Jews. Um, sometimes it talks about um, self-made religion in, in Colossians. Um, another time, two mentions in James, talks about um, impure religion is the inability to tame the tongue. And then it says pure religion is that you visit orphans and you visit windows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, that all being said, with that, isn't that our definition of religion? No, that's, that's a description of, of how a religion should operate. But but Paul will probably say, you can visit widows and orphans in their affliction, and you can keep oneself unstained from the world with, with the wrong motivations. It's kind of what Romans 2 is talking about. And so we want to just kind of really make this clear and simple, and I want to have a working definition for what religion is for our purposes here. And so this is not gospel in itself, but this is my Yakultian brain trying to process what this looks like. Um, and this is how I've got, oh, I've got to switch over here. Okay. Religion defined, a tool comprised of beliefs and practices that guide a person's inner and outer life. A tool comprised of beliefs and practices that guide a person's inner and outer life. Um, another way to kind of look at religion is the same way you would look at money. Religion in itself is not good or bad. 
money in itself is not good or bad. It is a tool. And Timothy tells us the love of money is what? Um, the root of all evil. So loving money, obviously, is where we spoil it. But also we know that money can be used for, for good, like the sale of a motorcycle going towards something more eternal. Those kinds of things. Money can be used for something good, but it also, when it captures our heart's affections, that's when it goes bad. Religion, what we see here is that it's a tool that kind of houses our beliefs and practices, and it can guide a person's inner life, but that tool can be abused. And we see that tool being abused in Romans chapter 2. In general, religion or religious people in our culture today, they would look upon those that are quote-unquote religious with some level of favor or some level of respect or some level of, of adoration. And even if someone doesn't agree with their religious positions, there's still, you know, there's still some level of respect. So we've got We've got some different religious figures that most of us would know. These are religious figures, theologians or whatnot. Mother Teresa would be one. Gandhi would be one. The Dalai Lama would be one. Bob Dylan would be one. <laughs> Read his lyrics. He's his own theologian. Trust me. Not that I agree with his theology, but he's definitely a theologian. Um, those kinds of things. Um, even a world that kind of doesn't value our Christian ethics. Even this world will look to a guy like the late Billy Graham and say, you know what, we can respect him because of his religion. And in general, people tend to understand that the religion and religious people kind of can um, help bring a level of security and safety to the context of our world. It can maybe help sustain a peaceful and orderly society. When people are religious, or at least hopefully, they, they tend to, in general, behave better or act better or feel more content and at peace, and they tend to be less of a nuisance in society. That's kind of normally the case. So with that all being said, we, we all know that, that good religion can go bad pretty easily and that religion has a dark side. We, we see this in history, don't we? We see a lot of times where um, religion causes division. Um, religion can create and it can, stain, can sustain wars. Um, it can give religious people a justification for mistreating in maybe some horrific ways others that don't hold on to her own convictions. And another part about religion, at least the dark side of religion, we can give the dark side of religion the credit for birthing what we know today anyway is modern-day atheism. That's basically the, the point because an atheist's worldview or their greatest hope is to rid the world of the most horrific evil in an atheist's eye. And their, their idea of the most horrific evil is religion. And if they can rid the, rid the world of religion, then, then all will be well. And I'm certainly not going to side too much with the atheists, but I can certainly understand their frustration and their disgust with those that would be religious and yet live completely contrary to the ethics of the religion in which they are claiming to uphold. And so um, when we look at this, our, our, our most well-known, um, so we're the evangelical free denomination, and we have um, within our tent of, of churches the most well-known pastor is a guy named Charles Swindoll. And um, he, he said if he could only preach one sermon to a group, of non, or a group of Christian people, all Christian people, he would title the sermon, How to Be a Christian Without Becoming Religious. 
How to become a Christian without being religious. Now, again, that kind of goes to the heart of what is religion and, and how are we doing this. And I just kind of, I, I dread doing this. I'm going to do it anyway. But um, before, before I go on, and this is an aside, someone will come up to me after the service and they will say to me, Maybe not after I make this comment, but they, they will say to me, they will say to me, I consider myself a spiritual person, but not a religious person. Maybe in some of your growth groups, you heard that said this, this past week. It's a very popular saying these days. Um, and although it's one of my greatest, pe- it's, it is, it's a, it's a terrible pet peeve of mine. It drives me crazy um, in the sense that it really, um, it just doesn't hold water. I mean, it kind of tastes like eating a bowl of soggy Wheaties. It's just like, there's no point to it. And, and the reason why is because to claim to be spiritual and not religious um, is, is basically like saying I'm a hunter, but I never hunt. Or I am a scholar. <laughs> Alan Hunter raises his hand. I guess that's, um, okay. Or I'm a scholar, but I never read. And, and if that's the case, what is it that informs your ability to hunt? Or what informs your, your, your scholarship? What's the content of that? There needs to be some content. Where does a, where does a scholar get their spiritual data um, if they don't ever read a book or don't do any studying? And the same thing, how does someone go and kill their prey if they never actually go out in the field and, and, and do this? So when someone says, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious, they're really kind of saying that, you know what, I just pick and choose from every little thing out there and I fit what makes me feel good. Ultimately, I'm my own boss. Ultimately, I'm my own God. Uh, The God that I worship would never say anything that would be contrary to what I believe. And so... I'm a spiritual person, and, and, and I'm on my own God. And, and so maybe on a, I don't know if this is a lighter note or a darker note, but there is a being in this universe and who is incredibly spiritual, actually more spiritual probably than any other being, and that's Satan, a fallen angel, pure spirit. He's pure spirit, so um, there's no creature more spiritual than he is. So being spiritual doesn't necessarily put you on the right team, at least, again, on my soapbox, it doesn't. And so that whole concept there, um, the other thing that's a kind of a pet peeve about that statement is that sounds very, very enticing. It sounds very wise, but what does it mean? What's the substance of that? And so um, anyhow, I could, go, I could stay on that soapbox. I will not stay on that soapbox. Um, more importantly, let's, let's jump onto Paul's as, as we look here. Let's start in verse 17 of chapter 2 as we read along here. Um, it says this, But if you call yourself a Jew and you rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth, You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself while you preach against stealing? Do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor dishonor God by breaking the law? For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now, I can see there kind of the the first point is 
The, the dark side of religion, what we see is it pursues the external over the internal. It focuses on the, the facade, the veneer of religion rather than on the heart. The, the, the physical seems to be more valuable than the, than the, 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 the uh, immaterial or the spiritual. And we see this kind of every day. We see this in the religious treadmill that people get on. They get on this idea of, you know, life isn't good. I don't, things aren't just right. And so I got to jump on this treadmill. I got I to gotta see what I can do to, to get right with, with God. I, I've got to try. I've got to get on. I've got to run faster and faster. I've got to work harder. I've got to strive more. I've got to hope. I've got to plea. And I've got to pray that I might just get out of this funk and I might just be able to please God. Or I might somehow be able to win God's favor uh, rather win God's favor by all of these efforts because there's obviously this distance between me and him. And so I'm going to do all I can to, to kind of close the gap between me and God. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to be a good person. I'm going to be a spiritual person. Well, thankfully, thankfully, Paul doesn't let us go on with that, that facade of belief, that wrong view of what our faith is because that kind of work harder mentality is nothing along the lines of a Jesus-centered biblical Christianity that we see Paul talking about here in Romans 2. For someone to be a Christian, for someone to be a follower of, of Jesus, the very essence or the very first thing that we must accept is that there is no amount of effort on my own. There is no amount of effort on my own on this religious treadmill that will put distance between me and my sin. It just won't happen. There's no amount of effort on my own that will do this. No religious effort is going to bring me any closer to God. It's only God's grace. It's only God's grace that has been brought to us through Christ Jesus that, that closes that gap, that erases that gap, that melts that gap away completely. Because it's God's grace that provides for us the salvation that we otherwise have no ability whatsoever, no matter how much treadmill run we do, earn on our own. There's no favor that we deserve. There's no favor that we deserve outside of what Christ has done. There's no kindness or debtor's ethic we can apply in our faith that would make us more or less acceptable to him. We can't repay what he's done. But for our mind, right, our, our Yakultian, Americanized mind, grace just doesn't oftentimes make sense. Forgiveness doesn't oftentimes make sense. Um, you, you've heard the cliches, right? In this world, there ain't no such thing as a free lunch. Heard that? Live by that? A lot of us do. Um, I used to live by that in, in the fab shop. That's, that's something that we would talk about. You, don't, you get what you pay for, is another, right? You get what you pay for, another kind of cliche. Um, and this, this can tend to be true. But with that in mind, many people find themselves trapped, trapped, and I guarantee you, if, it's, if, if you haven't been in this place, there's people in your life that d do, and it may just show up as indifferent or apathy in their life, but they feel trapped between this horrible vision of being damned to hell or what? Or the demands of this ongoing religiosity, this treadmill that we kind of have to jump on and run. It feels very much to me like our political climate that we're in today. I don't know if you recognize our political climate. It's not a picture of harmony. It's ugly, isn't it? And, and as, as people kind of grope for answers and look for candidates who they're going to support in the next election, it really ultimately comes down to what? It kind of comes down to feel like you're having to choose between the lesser of two evils. 
It's not the way you want to make a choice, but that's oftentimes what, what the dark side of religion does. It sticks us in this place of either I'm just, I'm just damned or I am, you know, I have to jump on this treadmill and just try to work harder and work harder so that I feel better and I somehow know that God has accepted me because, because of that. And religion, that's how it works. That's the same thing. And you see it all of the time. And people are searching for the right religion or system of beliefs. And when they, when they get it, they find just the right religion, but then they want to find their own sect of that religion or their own practices within the sect of that religion or that denomination. And when they find that, then they want to find the right makeup of people that want to walk with them in that. And so they walk down this road of trying to get it just right, and, and then they find out that it's not. And that's what religion does. It just kind of puts us on this treadmill. Um, Paul looks at this, he identifies these, uh, and I'm just going to kind of sum it down to four different places where, where the nation Israel, they've been given this beautiful, beautiful privilege as God's chosen people. And with this privilege, it's kind of like Spider-Man said, right? With great um, power comes great responsibility. Is that what he said? I think that's what he said. Um, basically, that's what Paul is saying here. As, as Jewish people, they have this beautiful, beautiful privilege, but with this privilege comes great responsibility. And what they've done is they've taken this beautiful privilege of being God's chosen people and they've perverted it into a, a, an ugly pride or they've perverted it into to arrogance. And, and so here he talks about four ways in verses 17 through 20. You've got these in, in your notes and we'll, we'll look at them. Um, this is a quick aside because if you're in a growth group, this will probably come up. Um, um, as we work through Romans, we're going to talk about God's redemptive plan for all of human history. And this has been a debate amongst Christian people since there's been Christian people. What, is, what does this look like? And some, some folks would say the Jews are completely their own, and every time it brings up Jewish people in Romans or anywhere else in Scripture, then it doesn't apply to me or to us. Um, and then there's others that say, nope, every time it mentions Jews, it's talking about redeemed followers of Jesus. And um, people are all over the aisle on that. If, if, and a lot of you are new to faith or new to this walk with Christ, and that doesn't mean anything to you, and that's absolutely okay. Um, but for those of you who are, you just need to, um, we're not going to get hung up in the dispensational weeds as we walk through this. And so I, I encourage you in your growth groups not to do that either. But we will kind of define that as we work through the book of Romans. All right, so now that I said that and your eyes are gleaming over. Let's jump in here. So um, four, four ways or four places that we see um, the Jews taking privilege and perverting it into pride. Um, they did this through their arrogance, or sorry, sorry, through their title, their, their title. Verse 17, you see Paul basically saying this, you call yourself a Jew. See, the Jews, they were often extremely proud of their heritage. They were, this is my church, this is where I grew up in. That was like them. Like, this is my system of beliefs. I'm proud of it. I love that. And they, they use this pride to separate themselves from all of the others that are um, either new to the Jewish faith or aren't Jewish by blood, or they certainly separated from all of those non Jewish people out there. And, and so they, they kind of, there was this, this, I've got this title, and because of this title, I get the opportunity, I get the opportunity to kind of divide myself. It was kind of funny, the, the fellow who came and picked up my, my bike yesterday, he, he drives up, and he had titles all over him. Um, really liked the guy, and I was, I felt good, because I had a bunch of I think I can say this in Yakko, I had a bunch of hipsters from Portland that, that, that called and wanted to buy my bike and then hack it up and turn it into a little cafe racer, which if you don't know what that is, that's fine. But 
not this bike. This bike, this was my, you know, this is my bike. And so I didn't want to sell it to somebody that was going to hack it up. And so this guy shows up, and um, um, because of my past, I don't drink beer, but he had this big beer hat on. It just said beer on it. I don't know. Just said beer on it. His shirt said, his shirt said, um, I used to be a people person, but then people got annoying. So uh, that was that. And um, anyway, so that was fun. And then um, I, I couldn't quite tell, but he had two flags that were drooped down like this. I knew one was an American flag. I couldn't tell what the other one was until he drove away. But as he drove away with my bike in the back, I could see the flags, American flag flapping over here and a Trump flag flapping over here as he's going down the road, you know? And so some of you are like, yeah. Some of you are like, oh, that's disgusting. I know. But, but regardless, we're not going there either. But the, but the point is, you know, he's got these labels. He's got these, he had these titles. And um, it was very, it was very clear. The Jews had these titles, and they, they did not steward those titles, their title very well as God's chosen people. Um, as God's chosen people, it was their responsibility to nurture and to steward that title and to lead others in the way of the Lord, to point people towards Him. That was their responsibility with this, with this title. Um, but instead of God getting the credit and God getting the glory and God looking really good to the world, God ended up looking ugly to the world. He stunk in the nostrils of the Gentile people because of verse 24, which says, for it's written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. They're looking upon, they're looking upon the Jewish people and their title, and these people are sitting back and they're proud. They're proud to be God's chosen people. And that ended up ended up um, hurting the world that they were supposed to be shining God's light to. Um, they, put, they put their own glory above God's glory in their title. And that can happen easily too within Christendom these days as well. Instead of followers of Jesus walking in humility and walking in forgiveness and, and everyday need of God's grace, you can see people that are covering themselves with religious veneer and their lives are not such that it reflects the glory of God, but the, what they think is the, the beauty of self, but it's really the, the ugliness of self. So, so the Jews, they, they turn this privilege of being God's people um, based on their title into to arrogance. Secondly, they took their possession of the law, um, their possession of the law, and um, they, they perverted that as well. God had chosen the Hebrew people. He had chosen these people to bear his word to the rest of the world. Many thought that uh, this responsibility made them exempt from God's wrath. They, they, they were given the book, they were given the law, and they, they um, therefore didn't have to live by it. And for us, you know, we see that in verse 18, but for us, what what it means for us, we too, I mean, how many hundreds of, of versions of scripture can we have at, a, at, at an app on our fingertips? How many of us, I still like the, the you know, I'm kind of old, I like the, the written, the hard copy, because that's the Bible Jesus read, right? So um, I like those kinds of things. That was a joke. Um, <laughs> didn't go well, but you know, regardless, we've got this exposure to God's word, but how often um, do we find ourselves, and this isn't to bring on guilt, this isn't at all, but we do have the responsibility to, to be vessels of taking um, the, the truth of the gospel found in the scriptures from the first page to the last and letting that 
um, letting that transform the world as we, as we look to reach with the gospel those near to us but far from Christ. And, and so often um, our time and our, our possession of the scriptures is neglected by, by people. Um, maybe, maybe it's not that we don't believe it's there, but maybe it's just that it's not very actively pursued in our life. The, the third one here, third one here is uh, we see the, the, the unique or the special relationship that they had with God. They, they've got a special relationship with God. Um, they, they would brag about their, their superiority, their standing before God compared to all other nations, all other peoples. And um, this kind of maybe goes back to what he was talking about in verses 1 through 4. You know, they had this inflated view of self and it caused them to judge the, the world around them. But for us, our, we have a re- unique relationship with God as well through Christ. It's a, it's a special, it's a beautiful relationship. And in that, do we, do we boast or do we assign credit, um, the grace of God in, in our own lives? Do we, do we, we, are we thankful for that or do we kind of take advantage of that and think that we've somehow, you know, our, our Christianity is somehow credited to us? You know, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. You know, I'm, I'm okay. No, actually, we're not okay. Christ is okay and he's at work in us, which is a beautiful thing. We also, in the special uniqueness of our day, had something that the Old Testament um, saints didn't have. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We have God's Spirit alive and in, in, in us. Certainly, hopefully, we haven't seared that, but we have the Holy Spirit alive in us, and that is an awesome privilege, um, and it's not one that a lot of others have had the opportunity to. But with that, how is that special relationship with God, how is it being expressed in your everyday life? in your everyday relationships within the home, outside of the home, in your, in your relationships with work, kids, spouses, all of those things. Um, the Jews took advantage of this special relationship with God. The last one I'll just mention here is their knowledge of God's will, their knowledge of God's way. We see this in verses 19 and 20. The Jews believed that their knowledge of God's instructions gave them this ability to discern plans for the ages. And so since they knew they were God's chosen people, since they had this title, since they had this unique relationship, and since they had this special knowledge of how God works as this takes place, um, what it caused many of them to do is just uncheck. They didn't didn't engage um, in any form of purposeful life the, the, the common word that is used in Christendom today is mission. They weren't missional. They kind of just checked out. They left that to a younger generation that's, that's up and coming. Um, or they pretty much just said, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. I'm, I'm pretty okay because I know how I, the story ends. And so they weren't engaged in, in um, the, the mission that God has put them on. Uh, and they kind of were just fueled by their elitist mentality, their, their national pride. And so the challenge for any of us that call ourselves followers of Jesus is how are we, how are we engaged? I loved what Barb said as she talked about prayer, that we are connected. We are connected. And every single one of us in here who, who follows Christ has been given very specifically a very distinct part in the family of God. And every one of us very distinctly needs to be operating in that part. And uh, when we don't, we're basically... In some ways, we're, we're negating the beauty of the scriptures. We're negating the beauty of God's will for his church when we're not engaged. And so the chances are those of you who are engaged in 40 things right now in our church are probably feeling some guilt. 
you should not. You should actually stop doing things. If things are going to fall and not get done within our church structure and the ecclesiastical system, or if your home life isn't well because you're too busy here, you need to quit everything here and take care of things at home. Uh, but it's, it's for those that may not be fully engaged in their gifts. So where are you plugged in and how are you using your gifts for God's kingdom? Because his kingdom is not about a few people. It's about the whole of us, all of us. We can't do it without it. All right. So that being said, uh, there's no doubt here that the, the Jews, they're God's chosen people. They're God's chosen people. And um, there's this dark side that's been, been pointed out here and how they've perverted these privileges. They perverted these privileges into a place of pride. Um, Paul, I don't think he was trying to, I don't know, it's hard. I kind of bounce back and forth on this one. Is he bashing the Jews um, or is this just his pain? Have you ever tried to communicate with somebody that you know is just not hearing what you need them to hear? And in your frustration, you maybe kind of get a little bit ugly in your communication. And then by the time you barf out things in a very fleshly way and you see the expression on your face like, dude, dad, chill out. Um, not that I'm talking about me, but, but you know, those kinds of things. And then you realize, ugh, you know, uh, I don't know. Paul is obviously, I think he's hurting for, for his religious Jewish family that is living in this false sense of security, that is living detached from the beauty of a relationship with God that he has found and he knows only comes from Jesus. And, and so I really believe he's, he's trying to bring some, some corrective word to them that would transform them because behaving well on the outside focusing on the external things does zero to cleanse the inside it just doesn't it's not that there's not need for we you should go to dr bob's expositor's bible class at 9 a.m we're going through the proverbs there and talking about the the importance of of our morality and how that fits in with the way that god's designed us but it's not those things that make us right that's just a, a certain aspect um we, we are still supposed to focus on the 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 internal rather than the external now um let's jump here verse 25 through 29 um this is great because if the jews at this point had not gotten the the message paul clearly um cuts to the center of the issue in their jewish heritage by talking about circumcision. You get the play on words there? He cut to the center of their Jewish heritage by talking about <laughs> circumcision? I worked really hard on that one. Um, all right, so anyway, um, let's, let's read. Verse 25 says this, for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. For no one is Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. All right, so very similar to the last point, but but really what happens here, the dark side of religion and what we were seeing in these religious Jews was they, they focus on the things that are less important and ignore the most important things. I, don't know, I know a lot of people like this and actually tempted to do it myself. That you can focus on the, 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 the unimportant things 
Um, you focus on the unimportant things, but you miss the, the, the big picture here. And so for, for Jews, circumstance, or circumcision was a big issue, um, very big to them. This was basically something that happened on the eighth day of a man's life, and it was this visible reminder. It was a visible reminder of, of God's claiming that boy for his own, being part of this, this son of the covenant. And so many Jews thought that the participation in this covenant through circumcision um, gave them um, an exemption from God's divine wrath or their need to, to walk in his ways. Now, according to Paul, that couldn't have been any further from the truth. Like, it, it just couldn't. Uh, drawing on the Old Testament prophets, he reminded them, and we saw it here, he reminded them that circumcision is just an outward symbol. It's just this outward symbol of what should be true on the inside. God cares way more about the circumcision of the heart than he does of the flesh. And so with that, when they focus on the fleshly duty, they're, they're perverting uh, this, this, um, this picture, this symbol in which God gave them and ultimately kept them in, um, in understanding and walking and bringing glory to him. So um, we, we see this overemphasis on the, on the secondary things. Now, the thing about this that's interesting is I was getting ready with circumcision. Think about it like this. Um, circumcision is something that doesn't need God's participation. Like, we just go to the doctor these days. They was, must have been more, more crude back then, but they would take, they can do that themselves. They can do that, right? They can do circumcision themselves. It doesn't require God's participation in that. But a transformed heart, um, a, a joining together with God in that covenant relationship is a supernatural operation. It requires, it requires the, the participation of God. So Paul basically is, is in emphasizing and stating that, that God prefers, prefers a, a, a heart that is, is circumcised rather than the flesh. Um, a, basically, a modern way to look at this is if you talk about the covenant of marriage, just for example. These, these two things kind of put it in our language a little bit better. Um, what do you think you would prefer more? You have, you have these two options. Um, if you have an unfaithful spouse who proudly wears a wedding band, or if you have a faithful spouse who guards the, the, the marriage relationship but doesn't wear a wedding band, which would you prefer? One that wears it but breaks the wedding vows, or one that keeps the wedding vows but doesn't wear the ring? Which one would you want? Paul is saying, basically, uh, you're, you're, wearing, you're wearing the ring, um, but you're breaking all of the, all of the vows. Um, the ring obviously is this picture of eternal fidelity and, and it'd be silly to think that the ring is the most important part of the marital commitment, the marital covenant. It's not. Um, and it's also silly to think that somehow this physical thing can keep a person faithful. Like it's magical. Like I put this on and boom. No, it's simply a symbol that reminds us of a commitment that we've made, a covenant that we've made in marriage. And so this circumcision and wedding band picture has a lot in, in common. Um, so um, number three, number three here, uh, the dark side of religion, it pursues the applause of people over the, typo Bill, over the applause of God. Verse 29 says this, but a Jew is the one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. But the Spirit, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from, but from God. Make no mistake about it. A religiously dark person um, is one that is seeking the audience, seeking the applause of, 
of people rather than the applause of God. They're looking for the praise of people rather than the praise of God. They're looking for people to give them the affirmation that really is only supposed to come to them by and through, through God. And so they've taken this external act, they've made the external more important than the internal. They've focused on the secondary things rather than the, the primary things. That's what they've done. And, and now what they're doing is in all of this, they've got their reward. They get the culture around them that says, oh, you're so holy. Oh, you're so religious. Oh, you're so righteous. Not really what the world is saying, but that's what they're shooting for. And, and that's not what Paul's saying here, no. Um, the, the one who, who is the, the, the Jew, um, or we could say, yeah, the one who is a Jew, the one um, in, in and has cloaked with this religion, that person uh, may, have the, may have the tag, but if their heart is far from him, what's the point? And it's the same thing around. He would much rather have a, a broken, sinful gen, Gentile who understands their need for a savior. Um, that's the type of person that God is, is, is looking out for, looking for here. And so religion's a tough thing. I, um, I think it's just a great picture of, of what we're going to when we talk about communion. We're going into communion, not oftentimes do these line up so perfectly, but it does today. But communion is this very same thing. A lot of times, at least me, I grew up in a really, really hyper-conservative, hyper-traditional uh, church, and um, communion was a time where I heard that you really got to, you know, scour all of the ways in your life that you've fallen short this last month, and, um, and you got to make sure to repent of every single thing and, um, and then try hard not to mess up before next month. <laughs> well, you know, by the time we got out of um, the sanctuary, I'd already messed up. And as you look, um, I think as you look at the front of your, your bulletin, um, can, I, can I see that real quick? One of you guys, just, can I see that, Nico? Yeah. Yeah, that one. Perfect. So... Um, because I haven't picked on Susan Courtney enough. Susan dropped this off with me last week, right? Or, or dropped us off in the office last week. So perfect. So, so perfect. It says, Dear Lord, so far I've done all right. I haven't gossiped. I haven't lost my temper. I haven't been greedy, grumpy, nasty, selfish, or overindulgent. I'm really glad about that. But in a few minutes, God, I'm going to get out of bed and from then on, I'm going to need a lot of help. Yeah, very true. Very true, Susan. And, and um, <coughs> the, the beauty about that is, is we do. Um, re repentance is, I'll just put it like this. Repentance is something that, that, that has kind of two elements to it. When anyone comes to know Jesus for the first time, they, they repent once for all. They, 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 they ask Jesus to forgive them of their past sin. They recognize that they're a sinner, ask for God's forgiveness, past, present, and future, understanding that. That's what they do. Um, and he does. He does forgive. That's a, a key aspect to of repentance. But I think to not slip into the dark side of religion, we have to be a people that live in the land of repent a lot. So you have the one-time repentance, and I think oftentimes we stop um, thinking that we need to seek forgiveness um, on a regular basis, but that little poem points out so well that, that it's not our own effort, and when we have any of our own effort, we have this ability to stumble over ourselves. You know, it's like sheep. They always are nibbling their way lost, and 
There's a reason why we're called sheep. We nibble our way off. But the way in which we stay within, within the beauty of the gospel relationship with Jesus is we, we learn to take thought or our thoughts captive. We learn to recognize that, yeah, my behavior maybe wasn't even that bad, but my heart attitude, my mind was such that there was wickedness there. And, and Lord, forgive me for that. It's a, tough, it's a tough thing to take our thoughts captive because it's much safer, it's much more comfortable to, to live uh, on the, in, the, in the dark side of religion because that can look good from the outside. But we're not called to be an outside-looking-good people. We probably should be less-looking-good um, on the outside. I won't say anything. Less-looking-good on the outside and focus more on walking in grace, being reminded of our need for forgiveness being reminded of our need of a savior. That's something that we need every single day, every single moment. We need him every hour, as the old hymn would say. And so as we come to communion, I'm gonna um, have the, the elders pass this out in just a moment. Noah, you can come up and, and, and play for us as we walk through this. But as these, as these things are coming out, yes, there is a imperative need, according to 1 Corinthians 11, to do an examination of self because we're not a, a people that, that slow down enough to, to really ask God, Lord, is there an attitude? I mean, I, I see the actions really well, but is there, is there a thinking that needs to change? I, I really believe that repentance is more about changing thought than it is just changing behavior. You need both. I think we can try to, in our religiosity, change behavior, but do we, how, how well do we change thinking? You know, it's so easy to slip into the bitterness or the anger or the judgmentalism or the the, the, the need to stuff ourselves because not feeling value internally, whatever the case might be, we, we can slip into those, those things, change behavior, but are we really repenting of the, the heart attitude that is bitter and angry and mad? Um, so let this time be something where you ask God to point that out. See if there be any wicked way in me. Psalms 139, point that out to us. And then in gratitude, remember, these are the very things that Jesus has come to take and take away. And it's the very things that he says, um, let me take this burden, Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, talking to a Jewish people who are constantly trying to be good enough. He says, come unto me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. When we come out of communion time, this should be a time where we can come out freed. We can come out freed because why? We come out free because we remember that the religious treadmill was never designed for us. Um, it's a perversion of the beauty of our relationship and our privilege of being children of the king and, and being children of a very, very good father. That's a beautiful place to be. So, so let this place be not a, I got to confess everything and then try really hard till next month. No, joyfully, God, point out the wicked ways in me. Confess those things. And then commit yourself to walking in the land of repent a lot. Commit yourself to walking in, in, in grace and forgiveness um, all throughout your life and day.